Here is one of a series of talks by spiritual leader Lola McDowell Lee, spanning two decades from the early 70s through the 90s. Lola was a Zen Roshi, whose Rinzai lineage included Dr. Henry Platov and renowned Zen master Shigetsu Sasaki. Lola was a religious scholar as well as an ordained Christian minister. While the talks are focused mainly on Zen and Buddhism, Lola drew on many spiritual traditions, including those of Jesus, Plato, Lao Tzu, the Hindu Vedas, Meister Eckhart, and Gurdjieff. I think most of you, by and large, here have at least seen the little book by Lao Tzu in the Tao Te Ching. And some of you have tried to read it. And it, at times, is a little difficult seeming. But I thought I'd take one of the verses, which I do periodically, and I'm going to read it to you. It is better to have a vessel unfilled than to attempt to carry it when it is full. If you keep feeling a point that has been sharpened, the point cannot long preserve its sharpness. When gold and jade fill the hall, their possessor cannot keep them safe. When wealth and honor lead to arrogance, this brings evil on itself. When the work is done and one's name is becoming distinguished, to withdraw into obscurity is the way to heaven. Well, uh, you know, <clears throat> we look around and from time to time it, it penetrates that we are living in quite an enigma. Uh, this is a, a very mysterious place in which we find ourselves. Yeah. And uh, it is also, to me, very mysterious as to how our life unfolds. You know, we may plot and plan around, but I don't know that any of our plotting or planning could lead to such bends in the road and such turns in this road, you know, as we do seem to encounter. Uh, you start out some, I know of a person that started out um, wanting to be a school teacher and uh, wound up finally, through bends in the road, being a Sanskrit scholar. Far cry, huh? yeah. Um, <clears throat> the world in which we live, uh, most of the time, seemingly unbeknownst to us, is uh, composed of powers, let us call them forces, energy forces. Hmm? Uh, some people call them unseen forces. I know that uh, we read that a long time ago, um, the, um, the people then, living then, and we think of them as aborigine, uh, that they believed that the trees had powers and, and certain trees had powers of healing and certain grasses, herbs would do the same thing and some warded off evil and so but I, I'm not really in a way talking about that. But uh, things do happen in such peculiar ways. You know, and there's, there's uh, there's a song, I, I heard it the other day, and I think 
in this particular instance, Petula Clark was singing it. She goes around, around every corner, around every corner, around every corner, around every corner. You don't know what's going to happen. Around every corner, around every corner. And are we willing, you know, as we turn that corner and maybe we see an opportunity, are we willing to take it? Or we'd look at it and say, well, that's not in my plans, and we'd go along and miss. Hmm? Yeah. You know, this, uh, uh, we have a certain amount of choice. We may not have a lot of free will, but we've got choice. We can uh, keep this in mind always, that we are here to uh, improve ourselves. And I don't mean necessarily, you know, with a better uh, speech or um, broader horizons of what we know. Uh, you know, what about spiritually? Hmm? Impro improving ourselves. It's kind of silly way to put it, huh? But after all, it's really what we're interested in. You know, something in us should grow. If we try too hard to stay within certain boundaries of our logical arrangements, we miss. And there is something in us that needs to be fulfilled. Now, this universe in which we find ourselves uh, has a circular motion to it. Space is curved. And there is, in a, space, in, a, in a space that is curved, there is not really such a thing as a straight line. If we look at railroad tracks, you know, over there, you know, they narrower and narrow until it's just one line going off into the wild blue yonder. Here it's two tracks. Over there, it's, now it's one line. And we say, well, that's because the earth is round. And so it drops off. Everything drops off at the uh, far down the thing. Huh? And uh, the, we have the uh, geometric theorem that uh, straight lines don't meet until infinity wherever that may be. We're living in it. Mm -hmm. But all lines will meet eventually, regardless of how long it's going to take. So that the line is not straight. It, it curves with the world or curves with space. Uh, we, I think, in, in this Western culture, we have a tendency to think a straight line is a straight line, and that's all it's ever going to be. Hmm. We don't ordinarily, even though the scientists have told us that everything is curved, we don't think that way. We want to think this and this, hmm? straight lines. Now, in the Eastern tradition, uh, existence is viewed as a form of a circle. And they speak of the wheel of life. And uh, we live going around this wheel, and, you know, on the different spokes are the different states. I mean, we can be angry, we can be uh, um, arrogant, uh, we can be real human being, depending on what... And we, we go around these different spokes all in one day sometimes. You know, it's not just set. 
So our states are these different spokes on the wheel, but wheel of life, wheel of life, we're going around. Whereby on a wheel of life, on a wheel, we come again to the point of where we started. It's a point of return. Uh, in our Western culture, we don't much think that way because uh, uh, our uh, viewpoint is, is more, and we have this deep within us, of a cross, you know. And to that, uh, you know, you start here and go this way, or you go this way, and you go this way, and you go this way, but you don't return to the beginning. You know, we, we're going to keep right on going. Mm -hmm. And so we have this wide divergence in this way of East and West. And about the only, only place in, in, the, uh, in the Gospels that I find is St. Thomas, in the Gospel of St. Thomas, where there is any reference to any other way. And that's when the disciples asked Jesus, to, uh, they want to know what the end is going to be. What's going to be our end? I mean, are we going to go to heaven? Uh, we're, we're doing all this for you and all. What is our end going to be? And Jesus answers them by saying, do you know the beginning that you should ask about an end? See, so his reference again to a beginning and of course, all this 30 years of practice that this little man did at this, this uh, in Fu country and this, with this, on Mount Wei, with his arduous practice and eating rice, you know, why, uh, to the beginning. What is at the beginning? You have now. And all you have to do is find what you have now. And uh, in the East, they talk about uh, the samsara and nirvana. Nirvana, uh, we interpret as being a heaven. Hmm? And uh, it means blown out. But that means that the ego is blown out. You know, you blow out the flame of the candle, but the candle remains. So blown out, it doesn't mean everything is totally annihilated. But the samsara, then, is the wheel. Uh, one is either on the wheel or off the wheel. You're blown off the wheel or you're on the wheel going around. Hmm? And we here in the West, I don't mean any of this in a derogatory manner. I'm not denigrating anything, far be it. Uh, you know. But we believe here that a man like Jesus is born once. Only once. And it is a situation that's never repeated. And so we date everything from this appearance. We have dated everything. Our history starts with Jesus. Even though there was a lot of history that went on before that, without which Jesus could not have appeared or Christianity could not have come about. It flows. Life flows. And if you watch Life Flowing, they had a program on TV uh, last week sometime, and it was called Tao, the Way of the Power. And again, it's, it's water flowing, this flowingness, and the water eddies. And then again, the water flows and eddies. And this is about what our life does too, you know, this flowingness and then hitting an obstacle and f eddying, and then little something comes along and we're out of it, and who knows where the next eddy is going to be, the next whirling around, huh? Yeah. Flows, life flows along, you know? People come, events, situations, circumstances, it just flows around in its own power. And we are that. We are that very life. We're not just sitting on the bank watching this thing. 
You know, it's going on in us. And so we could say here is an unseen force. Because how often do you see that life itself? Yeah. You should, you know. So this Lao Tzu then says, <clears throat> it's better to leave a vessel half filled than try to drag it along when it's full. Well, and he means, of course, too, that when something is filled, when it's all full, that's the beginning of the end. Hmm? If you wish to understand something about the truth of this existence, something about this existence, it's, it's very good to keep the vessel half full, half filled. If you have it totally filled, then already you know it all. And there's nothing that can get in. Hmm? Yeah. Now, to be only half full, have you any idea how difficult that is? Huh? Yeah. <clears throat> we look at everything and think, well, it, it should be filled. Everything should be filled, you know. And so we go out and, and uh, <clears throat> we, um, we're going to make a lot of money. We start out, you're 21, out of school, bingo, we're going after it. Hmm? And we begin to, as they say, fill our coffers. <laughs> now, so you've started, and you're bound and determined you're going to fill them. And it's very difficult to stop halfway. Hmm? When you begin to eat, it's very difficult to stop when your stomach is only half full. You know, this kind of diet is, brings stress all on itself. Huh? So when you strive to be successful, it just is next to impossible to stop halfway. Hmm? Because ambition isn't going to allow this stopping halfway. Mm -mm. And of course, when you've dealt already with so many hurdles, you know, and you've got everything under control finally, and you're about to ascend to this throne of great success, it's impossible to stop. It's very easy at the beginning. We can look and see down the road where I'm going to meet this obstacle, I'm going to meet that obstacle, and I'm going to meet that obstacle. We don't do this, of course. Right close to us, we may pick up a few things. But down the road, mm. but with the little things here already, they might be such obstacles, we can just say, it just really isn't worthwhile for me. And give up the whole thing. Hmm? In the beginning. When you're just ready to make a success of it, it's no longer easy to say that. Because now it has become very worthwhile. We have distractions, we have a lot of apathy, and we have this struggle we've got to go through, and sometimes we, have, we, don't, we just don't have the courage to make the struggle. And these are all interferences, and we look at them. Hmm, I don't think I want to go through with this thing, really. So we can stop right at the beginning. Hmm? But when the goal's in sight, we got one more step and by golly, it's going to be mine. You think I can stop? You think anybody can stop? No. But Lao Tzu says, now stop. See? This final step, this, that, that, the ascent to the throne itself, now you're going to sit on top of this ego really, huh? And that is the very thing that leads to the descent. You hit the top, and there's only one way you can go from there, and that's this way. Hmm? I mean, you're going to sit up here on this throne. What are you going to do after you've seated yourself? Huh? Here I am, folks. And pretty soon, folks are not interested. See, so then who are you doing all this for? Nobody, huh? 
And so comes the saying, when the fruit is fully ripe, of itself it falls from the tree. Mm. When your success is complete, then what? When youth is at its peak, its zenith, you know, what do you think is coming? <laughs> Old age. That's all. And of course, like the gal says on TV, we fight it every inch of the way. Yeah. Yeah. Then he says, if we keep feeling the edge of the sword, it loses its sharpness. It does make it blunt. And we do this with life. We keep feeling. And I've seen this happen, you know. Let us say there's a, there's a couple, a man and a woman, or a boy and a girl, or whatever. They fall in love, and they get married. And so they're off on a trip together, and she says, do you love me? He says, yeah. And she says, that's not saying it. So uh, he has to say, I love you. And this goes on maybe 10 times a day. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. So they get back, and he goes back to work, <clears throat> and she calls the office. Do you love me? <laughs> you know? And he can't say anything right now. He's got customers sitting there staring at him on the telephone. He's busy, and her nose is out of joint. He wouldn't say, I love you. No. So he gets home, and we have this nice big argument. People manipulating people. They are direct and indirect attempts to have their love confirmed. You know, their, their possessions confirmed. Huh? Lovers themselves kill love. Yeah. I mean, if there is really a true, good relationship, why do you need all the confirmation? Hmm? Unless you're very insecure. And so we do this in our insecurity in several facets of living. You know. uh, we return to something in memory where the event had turned out, oh, very successful for me. Oh, yeah. And how great we were at that moment. And nobody can ever take that away from me. And we go over it, and we over, go over it, and we go over it, you know. And we never seem to make any progress beyond that particular point. That's when we were great. And we do this with love, and we do this with whatever comes along. Because somehow we're not really sure of ourselves. This, this feeling of confidence in ourselves, it seems to be missing. Uh, so we, we boost ourselves and we try to assure ourselves by going over in our minds the same experience, you know, like a phonograph record over and over and over and over and over and over, because then it was fine. And the thing is that little by little, it loses its edge. We're no longer fine. We've lost it. You know, it's um, the sharpness you know, of an edge you know, is acute only at the first impact. What do they say? You know, you only make the first impression once. After that, it's, it's lost its sharpness. Hmm? We don't like that much. So it, the whole thing then becomes a kind of a stage for us. And we make demands. And we strive for a repetition of a something. Hmm? And the whole thing gets to be a little dead and dull because we're striving to repeat. And even if it could be repeated, which it can't, the sharpness of it, the edge of it, the beauty of it, whatever of it, you can't repeat. 
No. Now, Lao Tzu is saying that one who makes no effort to attain to that same joy again and again and again, if you're not making the effort to have that repetition, to hold that repetition, to grasp that repetition, no effort put in that direction, one finds that one can experience it every day. One doesn't worry about the edge. And so it's always sharp. Each new joy is sharp unto itself. The repetition. Mm. There is a story, I think I may have told it before already. It's about this drama comp company in Russia. And uh, one of the actors who was to play the part of a stammerer, -er. <laughs> he stammered in the play. <laughs> All of a sudden was ill, acutely ill. And the show was about to begin. And then this management just simply didn't know what to do. I mean, hmm, here is this vacancy in the, this play, and evidently the stammerer -er was a very important <laughs> Art. And so someone suggested that uh, in this particular little town where they were going to put this play, there was a son of a very wealthy man, and he had a stammer. And this stammer in this boy was incurable. So they brought the boy, and after a little briefing, he was ready to go on the stage. He got on the stage. And this miracle happened for him. He couldn't stammer no matter how hard he tried. And he never stammered again. Never. Hmm? Now, the psychologists say that if a person becomes fully conscious, now, fully conscious of something like that, the whole thing is, is, is lost, it's wiped out. To become fully conscious. Right or wrong, they say. This is what they say. Some of them say. So I could then ask, have you ever, have you ever tried to grasp this ego eye, to really pick it up and hold it? And picking it up and holding it, supposing you became fully conscious of it, what do you think would happen to it? You might try and see what happens. Hmm. It's not easy, but you could try. Now, we as human beings, man, animals, plants, they all do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We suffer. We suffer a lot in this world. We have physical pain, we have physical illnesses, uh, we have psychic pain, feelings that we don't like, feelings we don't want, and they come upon us. And then sometimes we also have mental stress, and we sort of go up and down the ladder of this suffering. And at the same time, we are working so hard, you know, we want to be happy and we want to be pain-free, free of any kind of pain. I don't want it. I don't want to look at it again. I've had it. And we're so busy trying to find this happiness that this, the edge of this unhappiness is always very sharp. Mm. We're miserable in this world, by and large, not because there is so much misery, 
but because there is this fundamental error in the way we view our lives. We don't want to touch any part, parcel or anything, of unhappiness. I don't blame you. But if you wouldn't put up a wall against it and say, okay, you know, there's night and day, the, the, the ocean tides are there, the moon waxes and wanes, and it's going to come. I don't have to fight it. I can tolerate it if I don't fight it. And I don't always have to keep running from it. It's like uh, Hakuin's song of meditation, you know, here we are in the midst of water, crying for a drink. And yet we won't touch the water. So this, this sharpness of this unhappiness, you know, it remains. And we are so eager for our happiness to have what we want that we blunt its edge in the process. Just the opposite of what we want to do is what we're doing. Oh, people, you look at them, they're miserable. You know? And then we say happiness is a dream. Well, unhappiness is a dream then also. You cannot have one without the other. It's, it's just not. One, Lao Tzu now is inferring that one who keeps feeling the edge of misery, I mean, he acknowledges to himself, you know, that misery is there. You know, and he doesn't worry about all the time being happy. He, you know, he's going through life, just conscious of himself, going through life. And he finds that the edge of misery becomes dull. And that all of a sudden, the life itself is this fountain of joy. There used to be an old story about, I think everybody here knows it, about the man who searched all over the world who wanted to know what life was. And he came finally to this wise old man in the mountains. And he asked him what life was. And the man said, oh, life is a fountain. And I think there's three stories all together. And finally, the third time he comes back and he says, but you said life was a fountain. I did. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, then Lao Tzu goes on to say, when the house is filled with gold and diamonds, the owner cannot protect it. We can protect what we have only when we're poor. Hmm? When we have just enough that can be guarded by one person. When we need the help of others, then we have a fear of losing. Because what we consider wealth, then, is in the hands of others. And that's not safe. Uh, so, in a way, uh, what do you call, then, your wealth? Uh, we could go off on that tangent quite a bit. And uh, if it is this spiritual quest that you are on, in whose hands is it? And is it safe? Hmm. Genghis Khan uh, he had a tremendous amount of courage in his fighting, but he was afraid to die. He had killed thousands of people so that he could live as he wanted to live. I mean, this big excitement for him of going out and conquering. You know. And he was afraid that the time would come when somebody was bound to kill him. 
and he had a lot of enemies, naturally. So he had many sleepless nights. After all, we die at night. So he doubled the guards around the tent. He wanted to live in a tent, he felt that was safer. And then, uh, <clears throat> because he couldn't watch all these guards, he got guards to guard the guards. And then he got guards to guard the guards to guard the guards. Seven times, <laughs> guards. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to go through that. And he made sure that these guards could not become friendly. And this was his search for security. He slept in the afternoons. And in spite of all of these precautions now, there came a time when one night he was so tired, he fell asleep. He dozed. His sword was here by his side, and he just sat in the chair and dozed. And it so happened that one of the horses outside got loose and there was pandemonium. The guards began to run around and they began to shout. And this Genghis Khan, he woke with his start and his sword in his hand, he rushed out of the tent. And as he rushed out of the tent, he fell over one of the pegs of the tent and it pierced his stomach and killed him. Hmm? This, this precious tent that was part of his security system. Huh? So it was his security system that killed him. His fear. Hmm? Now, people round and about, and we hear a lot about it, they talk about treading the path. People want to find uh, God's love and God's will. And then one day we hear that, oh, over there, they know of a way. What happens when a person hears that there is a way? Hmm? In your heart, what happens? Well, uh, if the right kind of motivation is present, we have then a willingness to plunge into something that we have not known before. And we listen maybe to some words that Jesus had repeated at one time. Where your treasure is, so will your heart be also. So then this boils down to what really do you love? To find reality, the reality of this existence, you must really want to see it as it is and not as you want it to be. Can you love that much? And in order to know that, you have to take a plunge into yourself. Hmm? Now, in the, in the traditions, the Eastern and Western Catholic, Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, and the Latin, the Roman Catholic Church, they use the term, which is also used in the Bible, of Abba, and it means Father. So, um, there were these two fathers, and one was called Lot, and the other was called Joseph. And Abba Lot said to Abba Joseph, Father, I fast a little, I pray and I meditate. I live in peace as far as I can. 
I purify my thoughts. What else can I do? And Abba Joseph stood up in front of him and he stretched his hands up to heaven and as he did, his fingers became living flames. And he said, if you want, if you want, you can become all fire. If you want. And along in this same line, there was this man, let's say he's from New York, and he took a trip. And he went to Greece. And upon his return, uh, some weeks later, he had dinner with some of his friends. And he told them about visiting Greece and about visiting the islands. And he finally came to this place in his narration where he told them about visiting Mount Athos. Uh, Mount Athos uh, is, is the holy mountain uh, where the Hesychasts live, the, the Greek mystics, the, in the, uh, I say Greek, it's Greek Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, Mount Athos. They live there in, in these little cells like. And he saw there on this Mount Athos, this man did, uh, what to him was a very disturbing sight. There was this very gloomy looking monk sitting outside of his cell, and he was crying. So this visitor asked him, you know, Father, what's the matter? And this monk answered him, saying, Oh, everything is bad. I have been on this holy mountain for 38 years, and I have not yet achieved pure prayer. And one of these dinner companions then remarked, well, how sad, huh? All this, all these years on Mount Athos, fasting and praying and keeping vigils and not being with women, and he has not yet achieved pure prayer. And then another guest spoke up and said, you know, that's a sad story. The real sadness is, however, that after 38 years on a holy mountain, he still cares about achieving pure prayer. Hmm? I don't know that anybody really goes to a uh, mountain, holy or otherwise, you know, or anywhere else really to find a pure prayer. Because no matter what kind of prayer then you had, it would still be a notion of yours. Hmm? What do you go to a holy mountain for? Jesus, you know, they said, after he talked to the multitudes, he went up into the mountain and he was transfigured. That's why you go to a mountain, huh? You go to discover what is the love of God. Really, God's love. You go to discover the will of God. God's will. No. And you try to move with that, this will of God. Hmm? And here then, when I said in the beginning, unseen powers, you begin to see them. You begin to know them, the will of God and the love of God. And all the other powers that there may be of which we know nothing. Hmm? You know, after all, if you go looking for God as he is, rather than how you want him to be, as he is, to find the aspects of him. Hmm? They say, you know, God looks after children and drunks and his own. 
And so around every corner, around every corner. Huh? Yeah. See, what you want, what you want, when the gold and the jade reach such proportions that we can no longer protect them, then who is the owner? You? Hmm. We become a slave to it. And we talk about that, you know, in money-wise. Look around. I can remember somebody coming to see me, oh, 25 years ago or whatever, and uh, it was, uh, she, she, had, she needed to talk about some things, whatever. And finally, uh, she thanked me after several hours and said she wanted to pay me, and she gave me a big jar, a big can of uh, desiccated liver, which I can't eat. <laughs> but you see, she was off into the health food thing to such an extent that this for her was a great payment To what have we become slaves? To what? Hmm? What about clothes? They speak of somebody, mm, this is a clothes horse. Yeah. When one cannot keep a rein on one's feelings, then what? Hmm? One cannot keep rein on certain thoughts, on certain ideas. Who is the master? And who is a slave? What do you want? Hmm? By what are you motivated in depth? And we go along in this life and we don't, you know, we're not aware enough of ourselves. We're so busy watching the stuff going around in our world that we're not watching ourselves. And so we don't seem to know the precise moment when we do become a slave. Hmm? And our efforts mostly are toward more and more ownership. Forgetting that we already are slaves to which we already, what we already own and possess. But once you try to be the owner of anything, you become its slave. And the one who does not insist on being the owner of anyone or anything is the owner in the real sense of the word. When arrogance arises, due to success and honor, it is an ill omen for the person concerned. When the work is done and one's name becomes distinguished, to withdraw into obscurity is the way to heaven. Of course, you see, Lao Tzu always talks about, you know, the way to heaven. This is what he's interested in, in, in the transfiguration uh, of the individual and uh, not so much the, the success in the world. Right. Now, if we look, if we really look at our world, we can see that we weave our webs, our entanglements, very much as a spider weaves a web. And here we've gone into this thing and we've got this web all nicely set up here now and then we bewail, we are wailing our lot, and we struggle to find ways to get out of this web, to get off of this self-inflicted imprisonment that we have created. Hmm? There's only one thing you can be a master of, and that's yourself. And then you can be in any place, and it's okay. When someone like uh, the Buddha 
you know, uh, when he went away, he was 18, you know, or whatever it was, he went out to, uh, to, to seek, because he had finally, he had seen a sick person, and he had never known sickness before, and he, he, he saw a dead person, and he had never known death before. So he gave up his throne and his kingdom, and we marvel at this. He gave all of that up, this whole kingdom, he, he, his kingship, you know, we marvel. We think it's really something, and we're mistaken. He simply renounced his own slavery. He left himself free. Lao Tzu himself, you know, he followed his own advice. When the, you know, people were coming hundreds of miles to see him. Uh, he just slipped, tried to slip away. And they stopped him, of course, at the gate. And so he had to write this little book. And he left the book there and he left. And nobody ever knew what happened to him. There were reports that he was seen in Athens. There were reports that he was seen in Rome. There were reports that he was seen in Egypt. There were reports that he was seen in India. Uh, some people said that he died just not far from the gate, and there are other people who said he never died at all. <laughs> yeah. When your labor is filled with success, you know, just almost, then you step into obscurity. Silently, just step aside. And that's very difficult for us. So in the meanwhile, we begin to try to understand the subtleness, the subtleties in which we live. You know, it's when, uh, when a hunter goes out and shoot birds, archery. He has to make some kind of calculations, which we all do in our daily living. We make these calculations. Now, if he's going to shoot this bird that's flying like that, and he shoots directly at the bird, of course, he's going to miss because the bird is long flown away. And now when you make your plans about yourself and your life and what you're going to do and so on, um, are you hitting, are you trying to hit a place that's going to be flown away when you get there? Hmm? You ever read the book, The Art of Archery? The hunter, he calculates. The bird is there, and my arrow will hit that height. Hmm. And that's where he shoots the arrow. He shoots where the bird is not, and the bird flies into the arrow. He avoids the bird in a way. He avoids his success. He shoots at nothing. And there's the bird. If you want to really live, you let go of life. If you really want to love, let go of it. It's going to come its full circle around. Hmm? I said it last week, you know, this thing from Vivekananda, thine only is the hand that holds a rope that drags thee on. You want to be happy, don't spend all of your time trying to be happy or trying to look for the happiness. If you're really out there looking for unhappiness, you know it's very hard to find. Hmm? In this search for what we call God, it's not something where you can pick up your staff, your walking staff, and go out and attain him. Hmm? You, as you're going to find, eventually you're just left there with the staff. God is an experience. 
God's will is an experience. God's love is an experience. Hmm? And remember, wherever and whatever you are looking for, you are always present in the search. We start out with this ego, and it is the ego that seeks God. And this ego is m motivated by a subtle something in the heart. Hmm? Something very subtle in the heart. I, I, when I was a kid, I made the rounds. I go to church for three months here, and then I go to church for three months over here, and then I go to another one for three months over here. I was looking. I was like 12 to 16 or something like that before I quit. But um, I would go, and they would always welcome me that I was so smart that I had come to them, and that I was smart enough to have left the other, because in the other, uh, it was, uh, it was nothing, you know. They're looking for God in a different way. And of course, the different way compared to mine is not worth a farthing. Whatever that is. <laughs> uh, the name of the word popped up, you know, and I thought, oh boy. But people, you know, by and large, they go around and they're saying, here I am, and I'm searching for eternal wealth. And they're filled with pride. You see? They're filled. They're not half empty. They're not half filled. And they're pretty hard to drag along because they're so filled. You try and tell them anything. You can't get in there no how. They're filled already. Now, the other end of the stick is this Zen master, Tadasusu, you know. And when anyone came to praise him, and there were a lot of people that had heard about him and had heard his lectures and so on, they would come to, pray, to, to praise him, and he would listen very attentively, you know. And then he would say when they were finished, but you've come to the wrong person. I have none of these qualities that you talk about. And he would say this with such conviction and such assurance that the visitor would believe him and ask his pardon. And if anyone came to condemn him, you know, to revile him, and to get the better of him, Tadasuzu would give him just as a patient a hearing, and then he would agree wholeheartedly with what had been said. Yes, I am this. Yes, I am. I'm no good. Oh, absolutely, you know. And it was only after he had died that it came to be known how many false criticisms he had really accepted. He not only agreed with them, but he took care to see that the one who was doing the complaining returned fully satisfied that he was right. You know, such as one time that a man came to him and said, I have heard you are a very ill-tempered person. And Tadasuzu would pick up his stick and his eyes would turn red with anger and the monks you would sit there, you know, in this state of shock to see this happening to their teacher, you know, whom they knew was so patient and kind and here he is sitting there becoming very angry over nothing. This man just saying he was ill-tempered, he became ill-tempered. And, uh, you know, but the visitor would be very satisfied that his doubts were confirmed. Yeah. And Thomas Susu would just simply say, you're right. You're absolutely right. My anger knows no bounds. Hmm? And he would say to his monks later when they asked him, why did you have to do that? And he says, well, the poor man walked so many miles to see if I was an angry man. Was it right, not right, that I show him a little bit of my anger? A hmm? little bit? Yeah. Now, if you can do that, see, it all depends on what you want, huh? if you want. 
if you want, you can see a miracle and a whole new dimension will open in you. And just the fact that a new dimension can be seen, isn't that a miracle? Okay. And now, may the peace and the power that passeth all understanding hold us and keep us in the love of the Christed consciousness while we are seemingly separate one from another. And I do thank you very much. If you find Lola's talks valuable, more will be posted in weeks to come.